Hi, everyone. Welcome. Uh, my name is Leia Sarna. I am the Associate Director of Education and the Director of High School Programs for the Drusha Institute. Uh, we're so glad you're all here joining us as part of our LOL program. We have a lot of other shirim going on, um, so definitely feel free to check all of those out and um, join other classes beyond this one since as i mentioned before this is the final the final installment in this series um and i will just tell you a little bit about Remise. Um, Ariel Remise joined the faculty of Stanford University in 2017 as an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies. He serves as the rabbi in residence at Atik, the Jewish Maker Institute, and they make beautiful things, as you might imagine, so definitely look at that. Um, previously, he was the director of Jewish studies and a visiting assistant professor of modern Jewish thought at Hebrew College in Newton, Massachusetts. He holds a PhD in Jewish studies from Harvard University and rabbinic ordination from Beit Midrash Har'al in Israel. Um, and and he has some books that you can buy. Um, the author of Speaking Infinities, God and Language and the Teachings of the Magad of Mezrich. And he's the co-editor of two volume, A New Hasidism, Roots and Branches. Um, and he's working on a forthcoming monograph examining the relationship between spirituality and law from the dawn of Hasidism to the eve of the 20th century. Without further ado. Thank you so much, Rabbanit Leah. Um, yeah, one of my teachers, he always used to say somewhat flippantly, I never make my students read my books. I just make them buy them. I always thought that was funny. Um, wonderful, to, don't buy my books. <laughs> wonderful to be with you all today. Um, I see some, some faces who have been here for all of the journey and some new faces. It's really wonderful to be here. Um, the first thing I wanna say is that um, several of the sources here um, I taught um, about three weeks ago um, here in Berkeley at the Shloshim for a very dear friend of mine, um, a very dear community member here um, who passed away tragically um, and very suddenly. Um, his name was Yonim, Yonim Shwag, Yonim Eliezer Meir Ben Tana, Tanya Hana Yeshua. So I would like to dedicate today's learning to his, to his memory, um, his, unique soul and wonderful, wonderful being very much accompanies me when I think about these sources and I would like to have him in mind um, today. The three things that I wanna to think together about today um, complement the first two themes that we've been exploring. Much of what we talked about last time and the time before that was on the never ending nature of the religious quest. Kol hamishtokek lo nuach, um, when you truly have this kind of love for God or this love for something, it draws you forward in such a way that you will not stop, even though you know at the very beginning that you're never going to arrive at what you might imagine to be a destination. The second thing is that these requests are not linear. It's two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three steps back, and you keep moving in the direction that your heart draws you, although it doesn't feel like the progress is always linear. Sometimes you have an amazing moment in tefillah, but the next time you open a siddur, nothing happens. Sometimes you have an amazing read of a gemara, and then you open something else, and it all falls apart. Sometimes you have an amazing read of a text, and you find out that you've read it all wrong. 
sometimes you have an amazing meditation one morning and the next time it doesn't work rather than that being a um, an indication that you're on the wrong path the hasidic sources say no that's an indication you're on the right path because you're striving forward and if you don't feel that kind of positive resistance then you're not making progress um, the three things that I'd like to talk about today have to do with ritual, physical journeys, and the individual. Ritual, physical journeys, and fellow travelers, and the role of the individual. So the first text, I'm going to pop my screen and invade all of yours in just a minute. The first text is truly, I guess, one of my favorites. Um, I teach this text every year at some point around this time, because I think that you can't get through the Chagim without it. And especially when your experience of the Chagim will be necessarily fragmented, as all of ours will be this year. You might be able to hear this kind of version of the shofar or that version of the shofar. You might be able to steal a little bit of time at a physical minion. Maybe not. Maybe there's not one anywhere where you are. I think all of us are going to have a very odd experience that will neither match our previous understandings or our present expectations. And that is going to be part and parcel of what it means to celebrate the Chagim this year. This text tilts the axis of our expectations away from some imagined experience and puts it back in our hands. So this text from the Svatimet is going to be about the art of preparation. The next set of texts are about the spiritual life of the community and how our travels with other people sustain us, transform us, and teach us. And the last text, a text that we'll look at, has to do with the life of the individual, that although we are communal, Aristotle taught us that we are political beings, and he's not incorrect, on the other hand, we are also defined by our rich inner worlds that we share with no one. And our rich inner worlds, although we may try to give them articulation, are in some ways the place where our nefesh or our neshama does its deepest work. And that is a personal path that no one else can show you and no one else can walk for you. Good so far? All right, good. I always feel like Groucho Marx that before I get started, I have a few important things to say, but now I'm done with those and we can turn to the real texts. So this comes from the Svatimet the Rebbe of Ger um, dies in 1905, a very important Hasidic leader, not only because he led an enormous community, um, also because he was one of the first Hasidic leaders who was a leader of a town, um, Warsaw, not a town, a city. Um, he was perhaps the most important figure in Warsaw at, at the time, um, although he split his time between Warsaw and Ger. He, many of his, you might say, constituents or many of the people that lived in its orbit um, were not classically religious by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And there's something of the Svatimet that has this kind of all-encompassing or almost, um, you might say, broadened Hasidic vision, not dissimilar to that of Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook, where if you look at the Svatimet, one of the things that he uh, talks about all the time is expanding the boundaries of holiness. There's a legend that Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook had the Svatimet on his desk, which I 
I don't know if it's actually true. I've seen Rob Cook's desk, but he doesn't have it any, on it anymore. But I think the, it, the idea there is that there is this um, through line of continuity of, of this vision of the expansive power of holiness such that it doesn't need to be afraid of anything. It can, it can absorb anything and that the power of the holy doesn't need to be afraid because anything can be sacralized. There is something of that within the Svaremet, um, at least in his oral homilies. So the text goes as follows. What you don't have in front of you is this very strange midrash that is a real midrash that says um, that we take the lulav on Yom Rishon. We take it on the first day of the festival of Sukkot. And the midrash says, Rishon lecheshbon avonot. Um, it's the first day for calculating sin. Okay, it's very nice you don't have to be a math genius, which I'm certainly not, to figure out that there is at least some days in between, I don't remember how many, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot. Right? There's at least some overlap in between the day in which everything has been wiped clean and the first day of Cheshvon Avonot, or the time in which our sins are once again being calculated. Um, so the answer in the Midrash, it's quoted in the Torah, is that people are so busy that they don't have time to sin which certainly by that point, I totally understand everyone's trying to get their sukkah up and this and that, and it takes a lot of time and you have to go and you have to check the etrog and this. And uh, it's less so in America where, you know, you just sort of get a lulav and etrog, but in Israel, it's, like, it's a big thing where you go and you shop and it takes a whole day and there's people who are cutting in front of you in line and you have to haggle. It takes a lot of time and then you have to go home and get the sukkah. Um, the source in front of you, however, I think, um, doesn't quite accept that answer and looks for something different to understand why it might be um, that there is this zone of deferral before the, the next part of the holiday season. So it reads as follows. Ava, right, explaining, It's not um, to quote my teacher Ruth, it's a good Yiddish word, far-fetched, to say that there is more power in preparing for the mitzvah than in the mitzvah itself. Now, if you have your sort of Litvak goggles on, that's a very strange statement. It would be like saying that the preparation for playing in a symphony right, that moment where you're tuning your instruments is more important than the crescendo that comes at the very end. It's a very strange thing. I want you also to pay attention to this formulation, koach vehatsala, power, redemption, saving. It's a very interesting one. In the performance of the mitzvah, yes, certainly, but it's in the preparation for the mitzvah. So why might that be? Reason number one. Echad, ki asiyot, means asiyat, ha-mitzvah, hi rak lisha'a, ve'achana hi le'olam. Performing a mitzvah takes only a delimited period of time. It might take one moment, it might take seven days, it can take a series of moments. 
but it is delimited by time. Okay, there are the six mitzvot that you do all the time, but like, let's bracket those for just a minute and think about what he's thinking about, those sort of physical mitzvot. Even if I stretch out my tefillah, my experience at prayer, an hour, an hour and a half, maybe longer, if I really, really, really concentrate on Birkat Hamazon, on the grace after meals, five minutes. Hachana, however, is forever. Since we're a smallish group, I'm gonna ask a question. Why is Hachana forever? I think maybe it's forever because in the preparation for a single mitzvah, we're also preparing for olam haba. Nice. And so possibly that's why it lasts forever. Beautiful. So Beth has said that in a certain sense, it's a preparation for the infinite sweep of the world to come, whether it's the, right, like, something that we imagine happening in the future, or as the Zohar would have it, the world that is always coming, Olam Haba is this sort of matrix of infinity that you step into even in this world. And, and, and in the preparation, would you say even more so than in the act of the mitzvah, you're stepping into that? Other thoughts? Could it be that if you're, um, if you're aware, going to your uh, Birkat Amazon example, if you're, if you're, more present when you are engaged in the act of doing it, somehow you're maybe bringing with you on some unconscious level all the other times you've engaged in that, whether it mm -hmm. has been as a road experience or as a more meaningful experience. That's beautiful. Um, every time I dive and I carry forward, not only the tefillah that I'm experiencing at that particular moment, but the sort of saturated legacy of that tefillah, the sort of thickness of that experience. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people feel this on the Chagim. Um, it's one of the reasons I think that the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah say that you're not allowed to change the tunes during the Chagim. Um, it's like, if a community has a thing that they do, you're supposed to stick with that and not just be like, wow, I have this beautiful new tune that I found, or like, listen to how beautiful my voice is. It's not about that. It's about the fact that the tune itself as like, as the Piazetsna Rebbe says, when people daven in a shul or when people learn in a Beit Midrash, the power of that voice sinks into the walls and it continues to reverberate even after the human voices have stopped singing, which is why learning in a Beit Midrash is different and why davening in a shul, Shinizke, that we should be able to do that at some point soon, is different than, than just doing that at home. And then you could sort of spin that in a personal way and say, yeah, like it's not just about the space, it's about the way in which the kind of fabric of my religious experience gets layered on top of itself. It's so beautiful, thanks, Judy. Um, there's a famous quote, uh, it's attributed to Abraham Lincoln, which probably means it's attributed to lots of other people. I just happen to have seen it once, um, attributed to Abraham Lincoln, that if I had, he says, if I had um, six hours to chop down a tree, I would spend five of them sharpening my axe. Which is to say that the way in which you prepare for an experience and the way in which you cultivate a particular framework or headspace for an experience, not only is that definitional, not only will it impact, but it will 
vastly, vastly transform the nature of that experience. Now, I think there's another side to this story, which is this, um, this in, impetus that you find in Hasidut, not only in Hasidut, towards spontaneity. And you see that also in Ger, right? In Kotsk and in Ger, if you pray today because you prayed yesterday, a Russia Gamor, like a wicked person is worse than you because like at least the Russia is doing something exciting and you're just sort of like opening up a sitter and reciting whatever it is that someone else told you to do. There, there is that sense, right? Like what they say about the Baal Shem Tov, lehit kaven velo lehit konen, um, have intentionality, but not preparation. So there is that side of Hasidut. Um, first of all, I think we've all had experiences where that works and we've all had experiences where that doesn't work. Sometimes spontaneity is great and sometimes it doesn't build what we need it to build. And second of all, spontaneity has a terrific power, but there is a different power that comes from the commitment to process of preparation whether that is preparing for rabbinical exams, or whether that is preparing for tefillah, or whether that is preparing for a conversation or a class, all of these things reflect a commitment that outcomes are less important than that process, or perhaps better, that outcomes will naturally follow to the extent that we can predict anything in this world the process that has led up to it. It's true of golf, a sport I know almost nothing about, that the, um, the most important moment of someone's golf swing is not the moment where the club makes contact with the ball. At that point, the story is already written. What happens is about the upswing and the way in which someone has prepared, not only before what's happened at the tee. The same thing is true in martial arts. Um, the hand moves at the very end. <laughs> the hand is just along for the ride. The hand is connected to the arm, which is connected to the body, which is connected to something within. And the moment that the hand is finally moving, the story is already written. And the same thing is true in a certain extent about tefillah, the way in which we construct that experience and we are committed to thinking mindfully and presently about that experience will have a tremendous impact upon that. Achana hi le'olam means also that we can take that moment of spiritual uprush, that moment of accomplishing the mitzvah and expand it in both directions. Remember that in the Kabbalistic calendar, Shabbat is the center of the week. It's not the end of the week. Shabbat is the central foci, focus, and there are the three days before and the three days after. And the Svatimat actually says this in another place quite explicitly. Shamor, um, Shmirat Shabbat has two different modalities. I guess three. There's the one which is the classical, right? Keep Shabbat. Okay, great. There are two others. One is having Shabbat at the forefront of your consciousness on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Shamor in the sense of to keep a hold of, not just to protect from any sin. And then Shamor also 
and Tuesday, because there you are sort of shepherding those moments of incandescence. You're shepherding and holding on to those moments of illumination and allowing them to have the afterglow that they deserve, not just like throwing on the lights after Havdalah and pretending that nothing had happened for those previous 25 hours. Because otherwise, what you've accomplished remains only within those boundaries, great as they may be. But to look for more is to stretch it in both directions. Hachana, and then you might say the unpacking or the kind of refraction of a particular religious event. Um, good. I want to skip down to the next part of that. You can read the rest of this um, that first paragraph on your own, but you might describe what he's referring to there as a kind of constant vigilance um, in preparation for the mitzvah, such that you are not caught off guards, but rather able to stride into that with a sense of confidence, presence, and res readiness. Ve'od, ki mi yuchal l'kayem ha-mitzvah kamishpata. It's a great line. Who's really gonna get it right? Now, does that mean you don't have to sweat the little stuff? I think for him, the answer is no, right? We, make a, we may have our own answers to that. But I think what this frees us from is an assumption that mitzvot are a yes or no. Either I did it perfect or I didn't do it perfect. And he's saying, no, that's just like, not only is that not possible, it's also not the right rubric to understand whether or not you've generated religious meaning from a commandment. Because you can take it as a fact that someone could do it better, and you could probably do it better if you tried it harder and again. That's just a fact. But that's not the point, because no one can do it perfectly. What is important is haratzon ve'ahachana. Aval haratzon ve'ahachana le'amitzvah hu em this is the really important thing. Coming into the place of performance of the mitzvot with preparation and with a sense of joy, seeing them not as a yoke, something that is placed upon us, but rather as an opportunity, which you will not do perfectly, but again, that's not the point. The point is what you have been able to construct in that experience through your hachana, the way you are able to approach it with a sense of expansiveness and joy, even though you know that you'll throw the cards on the table and do the very best that you can, but it won't quite be perfect in some sort of platonic sense. And the ratzon, the desire, remember that in rabbinic Hebrew, um, ratzon has two connotations. It has both will and desire, and they're both in interconnected. It means the longing to do something, the will to do something, and that is what generates this meaning. And ultimately, you're doing because you've been asked to do this. And there's a very powerful element there, which is not about submission, but which is what I I've described as the kind of duties of intimacy. It's a kind of obligation that you have to the divine in the same way that we have obligations to, to anything that we love. And in that, the ultimate rubric is not going to be kamishpata or lo kamishpata. 
because none of those check marks, there's never going to be a moment where all of those check marks are filled. But on the other hand, if you have the ratzon, the desire and the will to make something happen, and you have the hachana, the preparation, the studied attempt to create something, and the simcha, that kind of open-hearted joy. And simcha is not simply happiness, right? Happiness, um, at least in the way that I'm understanding it at this present moment, is something that either happens or doesn't, but isn't fully within our control. Simcha here is understood as a kind of studied joy, um, which is a choice. It's a choice in the way that we try to look at the world. And obviously we can't do it at all moments and at all times, but it is a choice to see with eyes of blessing. Um, the early Hasidic masters, they're not the first ones to pick this up, but like so many other things, there's a footnote to earlier sources in, in the Jewish canon, um, but they say it with particular felicitousness. Um, and simcha. I'm sorry, machshava and besimcha have the same letters. Machshava, thoughtfulness, mind, thought, and besimcha, you just have to switch them around, um, with a sense of joy, have the same letters. And the upshot, according to the Hasidic readers of that particular, um, 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 what is that, an anagram? Yeah, that anagram, I think, is um, that simcha is not a, um, it's not a random occurrence. And it's not an instinctual either yes or no, it's a disposition and it's a choice. And again, Hasidut makes really clear that there are moments of brokenheartedness and there are ways of encompassing and encountering the fracture of this world. It's not about a kind of saccharine um, approach to, oh, I guess everything is great, even though it's obviously not. But how we allow that to either um, debilitate us or not, in most moments, is a choice. Again, obviously, there are people for whom, and moments for whom, that is not a choice. And Hasidut is absolutely reflective upon that. But it's speaking in this sense of a kind of ordinary choice that every one of us faces when we flutter open our eyelids in the morning and choose to say, and start with this moment of gratitude. And think about how it is that we can go out into the world. Um, you might say that hidden behind this is also the acknowledgement that every little thing matters. And there are all sorts of versions of the story of the fish that wash up on the, on the riverbank or the starfish that wash up on the, on the sea, on the seashore and someone walks through and puts as many as they can back even though they can't do all of them because every one of those makes a difference that fish or that starfish or in the language of the Mishnah that every time you save a life, you have saved an entire world. Every little bit matters. And again, kamishpata is not the question. Is it perfect? Is it ideal? It's not going to be. Have you approached it with hachana? Have you approached it with ratzon? Have you approached it with simcha? Those are the questions that we can ask ourselves in, it, in this journey to construct a life of meaning through ritual and through the mitzvot.
Um, I'm going to pause here for just a second. Reflections, thoughts, questions, comments. I have a question. Sure. I really like the idea that um, we're doing the meets vote because we were asked to do so. And that it's based on an intimacy with God. And I'd like to know a little bit more about the Hebrew of the word mitzvah. Um, is there anything in the word itself that implies that intimate relationship, you know, that almost spousal relationship? Um, so the answer is that on a um, plain sense definitional meaning, the answer is probably no. Okay. On a homiletical level, the answer is assuredly yes. And, and in this sense, I think the homiletical is actually more important because it shows what Jews do with the idea of commandedness. And there are certain people for whom it really comes down to what's called gezerat katuv. It's like, God told me to do this, so I'm going to do this. And it shouldn't conform to my own rational standards. It also shouldn't be, as Rashi famously quotes, quoting the, the Midrash, um, it shouldn't be that I, I say, I don't even like pork, right? Like Rashi says, you should say, oh, I really, really want to eat it, but what can I do, right? There's this thing that tells me that I'm not supposed to. Um, so there is that thrust. One of the things that transforms in medieval Kabbalah is, and I think I mentioned this last week um, or the week before, I don't remember, is that the Rashba um, in the 13th century um, says that the mitzvot have ein sof te'amim, 13th, 14th century, ein sof te'amim. They have un, unlimited definitions. I'm sorry, unlimited, unlimited meanings. Um, the way that that gets incorporated into later Kabbalah is that there are infinite layers of possibility in every mitzvah, and there are infinite layers of meaning in every mitzvah, and there are infinite opportunities for the construction of meaning within the mitzvot. And you do the mitzvot not necessarily because they conform to your rational understanding and not necessarily because God told you to do them, but because they are expressions of this intimacy in between the human and the divine. And it's precisely in that context that mitzvah gets redefined as savta. Savta in Aramaic means a connection. Sevet in modern Hebrew is staff or a group of people that work together. So mitzvah there being read homiletically is they are um, points of connection, opportunity for connectivity with the divine and with other people. But that's, that's how it's understood. The other very important um, um, sort of homiletical thing that's applied to the mitzvot that I think is, is really, really powerful um, is that if you switch around the letters in what's called atvash, where the first letter refers to the last letter, and then the second to the second, the last letter, um, mitzvah, um, if you do that to the first two letters of the word, it turns out to be the name of God, yud, hey, vav, hey. Okay, so that's cute. But what do you do with that cuteness? The way that the Hasidic sources redeploy this, and this is already kind of rooted in the Zohar, is that mitzvot have both hidden and revealed dimensions. There's the hidden dimension, 
which is the first two letters of God's name, which are hidden there in plain sight. And then there are the revealed dimensions. So that can mean the physicality and the spiritual dimension. That can mean the part that you do versus the part that you're striving to do. There are all sorts of different ways to, to understand that. Um, the way I always understood it is that there is the, the vav he at the very end, which is the revealed part. And that's the, that's what is the sort of like the physicality of the mitzvah, um, the demands of what you are supposed to do or you're not supposed to do, that kind of um, uh, definitional dimension of the mitzvah. And then there is the hidden life of the mitzvah, which is a kind of meaning that I derive from it. But more importantly, it's that quiet space between God and me that no one else has access to. And I can't quite share it with anyone. It's a kind of, um, it's a kind of private language between me and the divine. In the same way, there's this famous story in Chabad that I heard from one of my teachers, Eben Leader, who heard it from Reb Zalman, about the person who was giving a sort of Musr Shmoz in Chabad, a kind of uh, moralistic talk, um, and was castigating the youth for not really knowing how to pray. And so in good Hasidic fashion, one of the youth stands up and says, well, that's because you never taught us. And so the person says, oh, Taka, you're right. And then he says, this is, this is what I do in Olam HaAsiyah. Like, this is what I do in the sort of very basic, very beginning moments. And this is what I do in the next world. And this is what I do in the next world. And he gives them all that he can give them. And then, so they're just sort of like waiting. And he says, and the rest is between me and God. And then he just sits down. And that's the hidden life of the mitzvot. That's the hidden life of the mitzvot that at the end of the day is not about should I do this or should I do that in the same way that the duties of intimacy that we perform for other human beings at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about the connectivity. And it's about the way in which those things lead us to that kind of greater connectivity, acknowledgement and presence. Good, that's a great question. Um, okay, so um, Leah, are there any questions from other multiverses that I should think about? No, okay, good. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about the spatial turn. We talked about ritual, right? You're never gonna quite get there. You're never gonna check all the boxes and feel like everything has just lined up in all the ways that you want it to, but there are still two very important things about preparation. Preparation is something that has no she or. It is something that you can keep doing and keep doing and keep doing and allow it to be transformative all in those ways. Um, and second of all, because of the impossibility of perfection, it's the commitment to process that really matters. Um, journeys in the Hasidic world don't just take the form of this kind of introspection that we've been talking about. People actually get up and move around. And there's a very interesting reason for that. Hasidic rebbe's and then 18th century, at least in the way in which they are imagined at the movement's early moments, um, the Baal Shem Tov came to you. Um, what happens with the Magid of Mezrich is that um, either because his legs were apparently, um, he had some injury in one of his legs that didn't work well, but he stayed in Mezrich um, and people ended up coming to him. And that becomes the, the norm 
for most Hasidic communities in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And what that means is that your spiritual community may be spread out. It may not be your most immediate people who live in the town with you, but you are connected in a kind of eventually transnational and certainly transcommunal way to people who are your spiritual brethren, your spiritual friends and fellow travelers. Um, and you don't necessarily see them all the time, although now each of these groups has their own Facebook communities. Um, but in those days, you didn't. And where did you see them? You, you would see them when you went to see the Rebbe. But what's so interesting is that you would see them not only when you went to the Rebbe, but sometimes you would also see them on the way. And you would learn from them on the way. And it's not just about where you go, but about how you go there. And there's this beautiful Yiddish song, Kenkotsk Fort Mimisht, that you don't get in a wagon and go to Kotsk, to this Hasidic center. You're oily le regal to Kotsk. You go on a kind of pilgrimage and therefore you have to walk. Why? Who notices anything when you drive in a car? Who even notices things when you're on your bike? I'm an avid biker. I like biking probably more than the next person. You don't notice things in the same way and you don't notice people in the same way. And you don't have the opportunities for that kind of communion with other human beings than you do when you're walking. What's the other reason? It takes a long time. And to, they, built a, um, they built a special railway to bring people to Gare um, during the time of the Svadimet because so many people wanted to come visit him. They built their own like sort of transportation network. And there, there are these stories that, that are true. I've heard them from people who were there and also there in like later generations of people hanging off the train to try and go see him. And um, um, this, the, the crowds were multitudinous. Um, and people at that time also have these really interesting reflections on what that means for the people who used to walk or who still walk and about the way in which something has been lost with the ease of transportation, right? If you talk to the old sort of Farbrent, um, uh, old school, I think is the best way to say that, Breslov or Hasidim about what it was like to go to Uman during the 90s or during the 80s, before the fall of the Soviet Union, they have a very different opinion as to what it's like now, where you can just sort of hop on a plane and all of your amenities are taken care of. That there is a sense that the physical journey is transformative. This text from the Morva Shemesh here, it's Parashat Vayachi, um, says it quite clearly. Why do you come to see the Rebbe? There are all sorts of different opinions. It's at the end of the first paragraph there. Um, he's quoting something from Rabbi Mordechai of Neshchiz, um, but I think he's giving it his own little twist as well. There are people who say that it's about going to see a tzaddik because that tzaddik will then pray for you, right? You'll get a miracle out of it. Or maybe you'll just watch that tzaddik daven and it will be like, wow, that's what tefillah can actually be. Amazing. Or there are those who go to hear the Torah and they're like, wow, what a great Devar Torah that was. Or I never thought about that sugya in that way. And there are others who go just to see this, like kind of, what does it mean to see an amazing spiritual personality? And I think we've all had this experience. There's the negative version, which is the kind of celebrity culture. And then there's a very positive version, which is like, I don't go to see great people just because I'm gonna learn something from them. Um, 
sometimes you just want to see how they are in the world and who they are, knowing that that encounter, even if they don't say a word to you, will transform you. And so the Morva Shemesh, who like obviously has nice things to say about the Tzadikim, says, no, 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 none of those things are really the most important thing. The most important thing is that when you go on this kind of pilgrimage, you go, uh, here I'm reading in the Hebrew, Avur lebakesh Hashem Yitbarach, Leida Lira me Hashem Yitbarach, Yira Haromimut. It means Yira Haromimut. That you go in order to develop this kind of religious, remember this word that we've been looking at all of the time, Levakesh, Bakasha, Bakshufanai, Achat Sha'alti, Me'et Hashem, Ota Avakesh, seek, 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 seek. You go in order to seek God. Leida, to know what it is to fear God and to know that God is the essence and the root of all the worlds. Awesome. I'm totally on board. So like many others, I am wondering, so how do you accomplish this? And he says that it's through the power of the spiritual community. When people come together, the most important thing is the way in which people have come together. They share a common goal. You might say that this is the powerful version and the positive version of peer pressure. That the way in which people incline, like the, I don't know, whatever it is that gets charged on a magnet, when they all go the same direction, there's a kind of attraction that you are brought along with it and that you're able to link up to that. And you are brought forward in that direction along with everything else, which is powerful, which is extraordinary, which is wonderful. But then he adds something more. And I think this is the most important thing because we all know about how great it is to be in large groups of people when they have that kind of power to bring you along in that positive dimension. He says that for each person, you have to kol echad ve'echad. I'm at the very, almost smack dab in the middle of that paragraph on page two. Each and every person or each individual in the English, yishma lechavero. Why do you go? You don't go to hear the tzaddik. You go to listen to your friends. Not necessarily an excuse to leave shul when the rabbi is giving a Devar Torah and like go chat near the coffee stand at Chata'ayani Masker Hayom. But it is, it, it's a way of orienting spiritual community where everyone knows it's about listening to the teacher but it's not really about that in essence. At essence, it's about looking around you to the left and to the right and to the front and to the back and realizing that you are surrounded by teachers. And in going there, you have hopefully done the preparation that it takes to make space in your heart to listen to them. Um, there Again, this is one of the stories that's said about Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. It's said about many other people. It's said about the Baal Shem Tov also. And um, if it didn't happen to one of them, I'm sure it could have happened and probably it did happen, where um, they knock on the door of the shul and there are plenty of spaces available, um, but they try and walk in and they are rebuffed. Um, and they're asked, like, are you such a great tzaddik that you're like not going to come daven with us? 
um, and flippantly, but punctually, the Rebbe, whoever it is, answers, um, sorry, I would have taken that space, but your ego was sitting there. That place was not about tefillah, it was about people broadcasting their religiosity. I've never been in a place like that. In fact, my, my experience is much more with places where I feel like I'm being invited to listen to other people and people are being invited to listen to me. And I feel very blessed for that in my life. Um, but this text, I think, is trying to underscore the danger of the way in which that can be. Um, I would say, Lahavdil, perhaps, academic conferences. They're, they're the people who go for other people to hear them. And they're the people who go to hear. And it, you can go to hear and still have something to say. Like the acknowledgement of this text is to step into a, a room and say, like, I am your teacher and you are my teacher. And we have to be frank about that in the way that we are able to listen to one another. But I have something to learn from you. I have something that only you can teach me. And the same is also true. And we are gonna miss that if we cross talk based on our egos. Accepting a kind of spiritual smallness in making that space. Right? You have this kind of will and this desire to hear something from someone else. There's a little bit of wisdom, something that I need in order to serve God in that other person's way of being. They may not even know what it is. They may not even know what they're giving me. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I'll only hear it if I'm ready to listen and to be educated. How to find God, how to look for that kind of divinity. Those are the gifts of other people. Now, I hope that there is a, um, a little bit of sadness in this text for you at this present moment. This is a very hard thing to do when we're thinking about like best case scenario one person from a household getting to go to Rosh Hashanah services with no singing and no talking and no anything else. It's a very strange thing. But I think that if you put this text into the other text and the other text into dialogue with one another, then there's a way of thinking about the present moment, which is in a world in which communication is no longer accidental and in a way in which these moments have to look different, hachana preparation, you might say intentional orchestration, is even more important, which means calling someone on the phone who you would otherwise have seen in shul, which means going to stand on their front porch, which means sending them a note. It can mean any number of different things, but that community is no longer given to us. That community is something that we have to create. And in a certain sense, like we're not driving to see the rabbit right now. Like we are walking. Like that's what it means to be, to be in this present moment. 
and there are complexities and sadnesses, and there are also opportunities. It's just harder to listen. Because you have to be intentional about that. Um, the next text from the Morav Shemesh, I'll leave to you on your own. Um, it was, it's just, it's one of my favorites. It's another, it's a transformative text and it's truly, truly luminous. Um, it was translated by um, Rabbi Dr. Nehemiah Polin, um, who is my father-in-law and one of my teachers, a truly extraordinary, um, a tr truly extraordinary scholar. Um, it reverberates this same theme about the power of spiritual community. He quotes this great text from the Rambam who says that if you live in a place where there are lots of, let's say, not so wonderful people, then you do your best to put them on the straight and narrow. And if you can't, then you just run and you run into the another place. And if you can't find a good place to live, so it's better that you should go live in the Midbar or in the Yar or in the forest or somewhere else um, in the desert than to live in a place where the people's um, spiritual nature will be um, of degradation to you. So the more of a Shemesh writing in the 19th century is not gonna say that the Rambam is wrong. He will do the classic Jewish move, which is to say, of course that's right, but there's something else to add to the picture. There's another layer that he's not talking about. Of course, he's talking about something else. The Rambam is saying, that's a particular situation, but you're never gonna get to what the more of a Shemesh calls Kedusha ha'elyona. You're never going to get to the highest levels of Kedusha if you stand on your own. That you can only accomplish with other people. This is why Parashat Kedoshim, the, the holiness code, must be recited to the entire Jewish community because Kedoshim, Kedusha, can only be attained by a community, in part because they become their own each other's teachers, and in part because they cluster together with a kind of energy that allows them to propel forward in a way that they would never otherwise be able to accomplish. And the same thing is true in the way that they sing together. You'll see this text in the um, B'nai Machshava Tovah. Here, I'll again leave you to that and to think about it on your own. There's an amazing text from the Nativot Shalom, similar themes about what it means to pray from a kind of spiritual friendship. Now, I, I wanna pivot and say, again, all those things are true. Um, there is also a danger in seeing everyone as your teacher. And the danger there is that you're looking for answers. Who is going to teach me this? Who is going to teach me that? Now, there are positive versions of that. And then there are also moments in which that removes the agency that I need to develop. Because on the other hand, on one hand, yes, without that, I'm never going to get to where I need to go. On the other hand, what's my voice? What does my authentic spiritual journey look like? People can teach me things, but no one can walk that road for me. And here, circling back to the Sfat Emet, you have a similar teaching here. So I'm reading um, in the source sheet, if you have it in front of you, it should be at the very, very, very end, Sfat Emet, Parashat Lech Lecha. I have it spotlighted on the screen. It's from Parashat Lech Lecha from 1882. And it, it, like so many others from the Sfat Emet, highlights the role of Avraham as the seeker of God 
as the iconoclast, like so many texts in Jewish literature, um, Abraham becomes the one who shirks off that which he had been handed and creates something new. Although um, if you read the Torah carefully, it's really interesting that he's already on his way to Eretz Canaan with his family, right? It's not just that he's making this up. So he's obviously inheriting something from his family, but that's a question for a different day. He says as follows, Bevadai ha'adam nivra al davar meyuchad, shiuchal etakmel ulahasigo, ve'az nikra tzadik, shemeyasher ochotav al pi hamishpat. Aval Avraham avinu haya chasid, so everybody is created for a specific purpose. Each person is sent into this world. In the other places that the Svaramet has this, he says, You are you're here for some purpose, something that needs to be repaired, something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be transformed. And only you can do that. And if you do that, you're a tzaddik. Amazing. Watch how someone at the eve of the night, at the eve of the 20th century, in the late 19th century, inverts that kind of now crystallized Hasidic hierarchy, tzaddik at the top, Hasidim on the bottom, and goes back to the old version. If you look in Bachia, if you look in the medievals who are writing under the sort of like Sufi devotional literature, the Hasid is of a higher level than the Tzaddik. The Tzaddik is like the righteous person who does this. A Hasid is someone who does this or does that and like lives up to what's asked of them. Beth, this goes to your question also. Um, a Hasid is someone who goes not just, right, fulfills what is asked, but also seeks to understand why is it being asked? What's meant to be accomplished? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for that other person? And looks to the root of it and then goes and does more. It's a kind of super erogatory imperative. You go beyond the letter of the law. So right, a tzaddik is someone who understands I'm here for some particular purpose. I've done the work that it takes to figure out like what's the hardest thing for me in this world. Yeah, that's probably what I've been sent here to do because it's the one thing that really, really, really is difficult. And that's great. That makes you a tzaddik, not a light thing. And Abraham is of a higher level or of a deeper level. Someone who goes not only to that, but beyond the letter of the law. Lifnim mishurat hadin. Hainu she ha'over Hashem me'ahava yachol lehafik ratzon me'ashem yitbarach le'ashpia lo mimakor nishmato ma she'yafshar le'asig v'sechel enoshi. If you stand in that kind of intimacy with the divine, you're able to perhaps discern the divine will to understand something as it flows out of that seat of divinity, that origin or root, the makor of your own soul. And to understand something that you wouldn't get just by thinking in a, um, in a series of logical prepositions, or to put it differently, you're not just gonna think this through by like reading the Gemara and then the Mishnah Torah. That's not gonna get you where you need to go. That's, the, that's like the bottom level. That's the starting point, that's great. But you have to figure out, so what else am I here to do? 
What's the sort of meta-halachic enterprise? What is that duty of intimacy really pointing toward? What am I here to be able to accomplish? As it says in the Pasuk, Those who perform God's will, like it doesn't just end there. Then you begin to listen to that voice, that still, small voice that is your individual journey that allows you tikkun hama'asin kara'ui, that allows you to transform your life in this positive way, in the way that it is supposed to be. Zochim nishma yoter v'yoter. First it's still and small, but then it grows and it grows. And don't think it's going to ever end. Because someone who serves out of love is never contented to be like, figured that out, done, had that conversation, can move on. It's not about that. It's about ever striving for those deeper levels of intimacy. When you're doing a mitzvah, you don't look at the exterior form, but you look at the root. And you're on a quest. You seek out hearing new things each and every day. So I've tried to give us a vocabulary for thinking about the religious quest in these five different dimensions. The never-ending story, it's an unending quest, but that's not a, a bug, that's a feature. That's what it's all about. It may not be linear, it zigs and zags, it goes up and it goes down. And that may be extremely frustrating, but we have hope in ourselves and in the world that something can come forth from that. The third, rituals are important. They anchor us and they are not dispositive. They're not the entire story, but they become a very important part of creating this life of meaning with hachana extending in one direction of preparation and the unpacking resonances on the other. The fourth is that our physical journeys are meaningful as are those that are taken together in the context of community as we listen, to listen to the people around us. And the fifth is that the community is so important. But together with that community, we are on independent journeys that complement and sometimes challenge those of the community. And these five things wrap together into the quest for God that never ends. So I think I'm gonna let it be there. I'll stick around for a few minutes, happy to answer questions. And I wanted to thank everyone who was here once or twice or thrice. Thank you very much for your time, for your attention, and most importantly, for your wisdom. Um, if anyone has any questions, now would be, now would be a good moment for that. I think you're on merit. I'm, I'm muting. Um, yeah. Um, this lecture seemed really different than the one the previous two weeks about, um, cause you, you sort of like talking about this, like group flow experience and how that carries you further. Mm -hmm. Um, and the rest of it, um, the earlier two sessions were much more the sort of private individual, um, and, mm -hmm. uh, um, personal spiritual vision almost where you're sort of like going further and further into the um, palace of the king 
So mm-hmm. it just, um, I'm just having a hard time like threading it together because it seems, uh, I mean, I understand how like both, both um, experiences are important for maybe for a complete spiritual, um, the entire spectrum of spirituality. But um, yeah, I I guess I'm kind of wondering why after going through the uh, individual Devekut, you like chose to go into the sort of today more into the group flow experience of like um, joining a, being part of a, I guess a Hasidic community and um, participating in that, those feelings. I'm not, a little unsure why that followed, like, why was that the follow through? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Thank you so much. Um, so there are two answers. One of them is deeply personal. I, I find myself constantly in a kind of push and pull with the communities in which I live, in which I am on the one hand, in some ways, essentially anchored in my own religious life. And I'm essentially anchored in my own trip, journey, quest to find the palace of the one. And I also, at the same time, am deeply aware and indebted to the way in which my community shapes that journey, gives me language for that journey, gives me power and strength when I don't have it, gives me power and strength when I don't know where to go. Here, here's why. Reb Zalman used to give this really amazing definition of a tzaddik. A tzaddik is, we all live with a maze in between us and God. A tzaddik is someone who has walked through that maze and tells you where she or he has found the dead ends. And learning from the spiritual wisdom of what it means to be a disciple and to be a fellow traveler teaches a kind of necessary humility together with the accrual of wisdom across the ages, which we get from our teachers and from our friends. And the only way I'm able to go on a quest is to live in a kind of creative zone in which I move back and forth between those emphases where I am a part of a community, I'm giving to a community, I'm learning with the community, I'm receiving from the community. And then I have these private interludes in which it's, it's no longer a duet or an orchestra, but right at this moment, it's a solo or it's a duet between me and God, however you want to think about it. But neither of those things can exist in a vacuum. And so for me, the idea of a religious quest necessarily encapsulates both of those dimensions. And rather than being um, at tension or at odds with one another. For me, they often challenge one another, but are mutually constructive. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? Or do you have to go? Um, so, I mean, in a way you're saying that it's almost, uh, 
the dialectic between the individual and the community, which is what propels you uh, most favorably in your spiritual quest. That's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Okay, so thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Thank you to Rabbi Mies for. Thank you uh, for, so much, Rabbi, for a beautiful course. Yeah, thank for you. a wonderful course for 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 adding some guidance to uh, to our journey through the maze. Um, and um, I hope everyone, you know, was taking notes and will have many things to take away. And I'll, I'm certainly um, sitting with the, the idea that this year we're walking and not driving and that even though it might seem slow and inefficient and mundane, there's actually a lot to learn from that, that version of the journey too. Um, so if you want to rewatch this session or any others, they're all on the Drisha website. We have more coming up um, between now and Yom Kippur. So please keep learning with us at Drisha. We, we love having you, we love doing this. Um, and um, all of those can be found on our emails and also at, at our website, drisha.org. Uh, and you can um, check out all of our offerings there. Well, thank you so much.